0: Thank you, Michael, and good morning everyone. It's great to be back with you today, and what beautiful words from these grand hymns that we've considered this morning and the encouragement that they indeed bring to us. Well, last week we began our consideration of the seventh and final chapter of the book of Micah, and we observed not only how this book as a whole deals with the guilt of God's people, as well as the grace from God's goodness, but how the spokesman of God himself took inventory of his own sinfulness and helplessness before Yahweh his God, and how he realized that he must look to the Lord as his personal Savior and wait upon him for his ultimate salvation. And today, as we take up the next six verses, the same themes of replete guilt and resolved grace continue, that is the undeniability of the condition of human mankind, of humankind uh, before the holy God of all creation, and God's unrelenting commitment to redeem for himself a people as seen in this context as the focus shifts from the perspective of the prophet himself to the remnant of the covenant faithful toward God as he has by his empowering grace enabled them to believe, to trust, and to know his restoration. Last week I mentioned the Hasid, or the covenant man, the one whom Micah identifies in uh, verse 2 of chapter 7 as the godly one who can no longer be seen on the earth. Well, they're there. But the problem is they've begun to sin and to practice lawlessness in such a way as they are indistinguishable from all of the others around them. It is this special, unconditionally loved group to which the Lord is committed, and he's going to reconcile his remnant to himself and in so doing bring honor and glory to his name. And so we might consider this from the perspective of the church and how it is that the essential same revelations about the self-discovered need of sin in Micah's case applies to all of us who would name the Lord Jesus Christ and whom he has set his affections upon from all eternity past. So let's turn our attention specifically now to Micah chapter 7 verses 8 through 13. The prophet writes, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants, for the fruit of their deeds." Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it. Let's once again join together in prayer. Lord, we're so grateful for your word, that it is living and that it is active. We are so grateful that you have not left us in darkness concerning yourself nor ourselves but that you have been pleased to illumine our minds in the knowledge of what is true and to direct us ultimately to the one who himself is all truth, Jesus Christ. We ask that by the power of his spirit, you would sanctify to us the truth of your word in these coming moments for his glory and for our good. Amen. I mentioned the great hymns that we've sung already this morning. Those of you who love the, the rich hymns and have studied the history of hymnology, you will be familiar with two contemporaries of the 19th century. Uh, Fanny Crosby, who was blind from the age of birth. I mean, I'm sorry, from the age of seven after something happened to her. Uh, and lived up into her mid-90s, a very long time, and she gave us many, many great hymns. Um, Blessed Assurance, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. She had a contemporary in England at the time, of whom we don't hear as much, but we have uh, sung as many of her hymns probably as Fanny Crosby's. That's uh, Frances Ridley Havergal. She left us the likes of who is on the Lord's side and like a river glorious. Take my life and let it be, Lord, consecrated unto thee. Uh, These two women who never met, but who were sisters in Christ, were very fond of one another. Some historians believe that they actually corresponded to one another. It is known, however, for certain that toward the end of her life, Frances Ridley Havergill, who was quite a poet, wrote a tribute to Fanny Crosby in which she opened with these words, sweet blind singer over the sea, tuneful and jubilant, how could it be that songs of gladness which float so far as if they fell from evening star or the notes of one who may never see visible music of flower and tree, but oh, her heart can see and its sight is strong and swift and free. This moving tribute connecting two saints who have never met, but who had the confidence that one day they would meet. It's an encouraging reminder of the bond that the faithful, by God's grace, share with one another. Last week, we were reminded of the supremacy of one's relationship to Christ over all others that they have on the earth in this life. And here we get a glimpse of how it is that all of us of whom that can be said truly have a bond with one another that in a sense supersedes all other earthly relationships. And it's in that vein that we approach Micah 7, verses 8 through 13. There is an association by common hope, and that's what we're going to be focusing on today. Micah, as I indicated, is not only confident that the Lord will hear and save him, but he is also sure that he will justify before himself all of those who, by grace through faith, have responded to him in covenant faithfulness as he causes that to happen by his regenerative power. It's covenant expectation that God will be true to his promises, not only for the individual, but for the corporate body that he is building for himself. We're anticipating that. In the difficult times around us, we, we remember that we, we wait upon the Lord, that we cannot move along his will for us, but good things are in store, and we can have peace as we remain and abide and look to him to work graciously in us and for us, as he expands his body politic, as he grows the number of his own. We can anticipate that and look forward with great joy, and we can encourage one another and draw from one another's joy and peace as we are reminded of these things. And so today's major theme is the collective body of the Lord's faithful remnant is sinful, but experiences divine support, and therefore they must anticipate God sustaining them and adding them to their numbers by the gift of his righteousness. God's own must always draw comfort from one another in their joint hope, as the remnant could, even in Micah's day. And so let's begin in verses 8 and 9a with covenant expectation as acknowledged with truthfulness. Covenant expectation as acknowledged with truthfulness. You'll notice in the 8th verse and in the first couplet of verse 9, which we consider 9a, you'll notice how Micah is expressing for the people of God essentially what he has communicated with regard to himself in the earlier verses. The true body of God, the representative cohort of the chosen people of God, will be blessed with deliverance. But the anticipation of this on their part, as with the prophet himself, is tempered by an open acknowledgment, a genuine honesty about their condition, even as Micah was honest with himself in his open recognition of his own need of a Savior. The people of God, those who are looking to him as they repent and long to be restored, they too must be honest about their true condition. A reliance upon God's faithfulness must also feature the realization of the sin within our collective hearts as a people. This gives us the opportunity to consider not only our own hearts, but how it is that together we may be guilty of certain things we're not aware as we assess our own sinfulness, to ask God to search our hearts all of us, collectively, and to to spur one another on to good deeds and obedience as we do so. Well, it begins with a mention of the enemy. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. This literally reads, do not gloat over our condition. Now, you'll notice the eyes here, as I indicated last week, will begin in verse 8, the first person will be the body politic, the remnant of God speaking. And so that's a little bit uh, different, a little bit odd. But nonetheless, uh, we do have the first person being expressive here of the remnant. And so when we have the eyes here, it's really, in a sense, appropriately understood as as we's or us's, because we're talking about the people of God as a whole. So they're collectively saying, don't gloat over our condition. We're going to come back because of the goodness of our God. We fall, but we will rise. We sit in darkness, you see. Nevertheless, the Lord will emerge as a light to us. So you see these confidences tempered with open and honest assessments and confessions, and how it is that those who think we're destroyed must not glory in that, because we won't be. We will, in fact, live. We will contend because of the goodness of our God. He is their light. I have fallen, verse 8a. I sit in darkness, or literally disaster, and then the most direct... Confession of transgressions in verse 9a, because I have sinned against him, I will bear the wrath of the Lord. His His indignation. Now we continue to detect an emphasis here on legalities. There is legal terminology underpinning the whole of Micah chapter 6. At the beginning of that chapter, particularly in verse 2, we see a specific indictment that he has against his people and his commitment to contending with them. And the balance of chapter 6 is a development and an unpacking of that in specifics. And then at the conclusion of chapter 6 in verse 16, we read that God having followed the influence, the people of God have followed the influence of Omri and Ahab, wicked northern kings, That even into Judah, they have walked in their wicked ways, they're infallible, they're fallible rather in evil counsels to the end of being made a desolation with hissing inhabitants and bearing the scorn of his people. There's a belittling that characterizes the people of God because of their sin. And the most poignant expression of that is in verse 9a in the second line, because I have sinned against him. That is the reason that the indignation, or literally the rage of the Lord, will be born. That's the za'op of God. We have to acknowledge, as sobering as that is, that in this life and in death, we bear on some level, in some way, the judgment of God temporarily. It can't be escaped. I had to chuckle about that a bit this past week as I was studying that, but I didn't chuckle for very long because it's such a stunning reality, but the Hebrew word za'ap for the Lord's rage when you transliterate it into English is zap. There's an acknowledgement here that the people of God, those whom he will make his own, will be zapped for a time with his indignation. We bear that in this life and Ultimately, the most pronounced way in which we undergo temporary judgment is in our physical death. We, we can't escape it because of Adam's transgressions and ours that proceed from his through ordinary generation. We cannot overcome that. We will die. And some of us will die. Indeed, most of us, perhaps, may well die very painful, horrible deaths. We don't often think about that, but we need to consider how it is that we should not have fear in death, but sometimes many people do have fear in dying. And it is that stark reality that will drive us again to claim the promises of God and to boldly yet humbly consider the reality that even though we are fallen, we will be risen, verse 8a. Even though we sit in disaster, the Lord will emerge and be our light and he will bring us ultimately into safekeeping with himself. I received word this past week that an acquaintance of mine from college, just a year younger than me, a lady um, is now in hospice with liver cancer. She's been battling this for some time, just 50 years of age. And she felt well enough last weekend to move her children into their residence hall rooms at college. And then she basically went home to die. And I was encouraged the other day when her husband on a caring bridge page posted that she is at peace and is blessing the name of her Savior. And we have the ingredients to do that here in Micah. 8 and 9a. We cannot escape death, but blessing the name of the Savior as we do, that is the acknowledgement that though I fall, I shall rise. That though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Old Testament scholar Thomas Mechaminsky, who taught for many years at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School puts it this way, and this is a great quote. They, that is the true people of God, by faith, freely confess their sin in the awareness that the temporal punishment to be endured is a punishment for their disobedience. This punishment is only for a time, however, for the remnant will be vindicated as they see God's righteousness. They can be confident of God's favorable action on their behalf for they, unlike their guilty compatriots, stand on the ground of the covenant. Their sensitivity to sin, as illustrated in the opening line of this verse, that is verse 9, and their allegiance to the covenant stipulations mark them as those who participate in the promises that are such a vital element of the covenant between Israel and God. I wonder if we as the body of Christ today, particularly in times of inconvenience and unrest and anxiety, I wonder if we analyze this hope and look forward to what he will do in us in terms of the ways in which we have contributed to what we may be suffering and an assessment of ourselves as the body of the Lord and what is it that we perhaps could do differently, even as we assess our own hearts and ask that same question of what might be done differently as individuals. Do we think about those things? As I indicated last week, asking the question of what God is doing is risky, and ultimately you can't find a satisfactory answer because there is simply no deciphering in Toto his economy. But we ask ourselves ourselves, that question for ourselves, do we ask it for ourselves as a body? I was convicted recently when I was listening to Dr. Robert Godfrey in a talk online, stating that he missed public worship and that he longed to gather with the saints of God again. And then he said, and this struck me, he said, I've missed worship, but I have wondered in recent days, does God miss our worship? Or has he stopped us providentially that we may consider and repent of the idiosyncrasies of our own ceremonies, the lack of preparation of our hearts as we come before him for covenant renewal, or the conventions of men that we may have introduced into worship that have made it less than worship and less than pleasing to him? That really hit me, and it caused me to begin to think about the church and to ask the Lord to give us a collective cry for relief and deliverance from our own sins as we consider the errors of our ways, knowing all the while the hope that is set before us in the gospel itself and remembering that most assuredly we will be victorious because of his unfathomable and unconditional love. We're worse than we think, even corporately, but God is better and kinder and more gracious than we think of him as being, and he will cause us to rise. He will be our light indeed. Well, secondly, in the balance of verse 9 and then in verse 10, we come to covenant expectation as defined by advocacy. Is defined by advocacy. In verse 9b through verse 10, we complete, in a sense, the move from the reality of common guilt to the hope of common salvation. The remnant of God endures, bears the indignation or rage of God because of their sin until that time. And here's the great news that he is pleased to plead my cause. That's the remnant speaking. We can say to plead our cause cause, and to execute judgment for us. Each individual within the remnant may claim this with confidence. He will bring me out to the light, and I shall look upon his vindication. That word vindication there really means righteousness. And this is still a legal verbiage that the prophet is employing. But I think it's best translated uh, righteousness because that's what it means. They will look to the righteousness of God as the one who maintains justice. We saw this terminology a few years back as I was visiting with you and preaching on the ninth psalm. David comforts himself as he lives through and encounters various obstacles in life that are the result of enemy opposition. In Psalm 9, verse 4, he says, For you... To the Lord have maintained my just cause you have sat on the throne giving righteous judgments that is he holds it all within his hands that even though things seem to be coming down around him David is confident that Yahweh has maintained the cause to which he has called David and made him king it's a just cause it's a righteous cause You have sat there in the heavens enthroned, and you have governed over all your creation generally, but specifically in my case, giving righteous judgments, giving right rule, bringing about what is right. Those are the ingredients of vindication. It's the exact same work of God here many years later that his people are experiencing through his bringing about what is just for them. It's not merely a freedom from persecution by enemies in the world, but it's the expectation that all will be made right ultimately in eternity for the faithful. Those who by God's grace hung in there, those who overcame, you will muddle through and suffer and keep on keeping on because you know he's going to make everything right and he's going to do it by the power and the might of his righteousness. Now, verse ten is interesting. The perspective again uh, shifts to the enemy, as in verse eight, and it's it's sort of a turnabout here, if you will. Uh, this is really remarkable. Then my enemy, he writes, will see. This is God's remnant, talking to those who have said to them, Where is your God? The shame that they said would be upon us is now going to be upon her. The feminine here is very important. Uh, You probably know this from your studies of the Old Testament, but uh, Zion was often mocked by the enemies of God, and the feminine pronouns indicate that. Uh, There was the statement to Israel, in a sense, saying, oh, you're you're not going to be safe because your God isn't strong enough or powerful enough or willing enough uh, to take care of you and to deliver you. So they have said to Israel, she will have shame. And now that's turning. No, you're going to see, oh, enemies, that you're the ones covered in shame. So turnabout's fair play. He's turning that back on the enemies of God, saying, she will be the one. My eyes will look upon her. She will be trampled down. She will be like the mires, or literally the mud of the streets. Now, there is a prayerful mindset and heart's disposition that is underpinning all of this. As I indicated last week, particularly from verse 7 and the idea that Micah is confident that God will hear him continuing on through really the balance of the prophecy. We'll see that more uh, next week, but we have for example here in verse 10 uh, verbs that are in the Hebrew jussives. Now I don't want to get too complicated here, but a jussive basically is a verb in Hebrew that is best translated in English as a subjunctive. It would be the equivalent of the optative mood in the Greek. And sometimes, and not, not wrongly so, it's not a big deal. It's just something to point out. In many English translations, the statement comes as a resolved action or something that might, we might consider tentatively completed. But it's really a request. And that's what the jussive is. It's a, it's it's an asking for something that is desired. And so we would translate it like this, may my enemy see, may shame cover her. This is confidence in these translations that do not put it in the subjunctive. In other words, they're showing that because of the sure promises of God and his commitment to them, that these things will be, but we need to see that underneath it all, there is a a supplication dimension to it. They're asking, they're crying, and sometimes even in our day, uh, people will make declarations in the name of Jesus. But what they're really doing is praying in their heart of hearts. They're asking, they're requesting that something would be, Lord, may it be this way. And the statement that it will, in English translations, shows a confidence That what is requested deep in the heart will, in fact, be answered and will be delivered by the one who answers prayer. But she will be undone. The one on the outside, now looking in, envious at that point of God's delivering power, she will be trampled down. Those enemies will be like mire or mud in the streets. This is the same language that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 10.6 in reference to the invading Assyrians. Israel may fall, but ultimately it's her opponents who will fall eternally. Israel will be made to rise. So there's a mockery. The enemies of God didn't understand that they were deceived Paul says in Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived, God is not mocked. These in Micah's day were deceived and they were mocking Israel's God. And there would be a price to pay for that. They would be on the outs. They would be trampled down. They would be as the wet dirt or mud of the streets. And so given that context, that showcases and highlights all the more the vindication of the Lord. I suggest to you that that last line in verse 9 is really the centerpiece of the entire passage. I shall look upon his vindication. That's the belief Micah has. That's the belief that the body politic of God is expressing here. Those who are faithful within, they are exclaiming that they will look to Yahweh as Micah looked to Him in verse 7a and they will find salvation there. This God who is righteous, who is right about everything and whom alone is equipped to bring about rightness in everything. They look to Him knowing that ultimately the great greatest wrong that will be made right is the extension of the alien righteousness of God in Christ to those whom he is pleased to save and to establish as his own. It's a preview of 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin was made to become sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him for our sake that lest we be among those who are trampled down, he will do all things well and all things right. But the most right, if I might invent an abnormal phrase or something that's a little bit out of the ordinary there, the rightest thing that God will ever do and the most wondrous is to account and to impute his righteousness and all that that means to those who cry out to him from the mire of their sin, those who recognize that when they fall, they will rise, that they will emerge from darkness and be in the light that ultimately the greater Micah, the Lord Jesus, is, the one who has said, I am the light of the world. That is the hope that is common among those of us who assemble as the covenant community of God this day, that he will assign to us a righteousness that we don't have but without which we have no hope as some of you know i interned at the historic brandon presbyterian church in brandon mississippi when i was in seminary at rts dr wilson benton a well-known pca minister very active in the General Assembly over the years, very influential man, now retired and living, I believe, in Tennessee. Uh, He was born and raised in that church, came to know the Lord very early, Uh, went off to seminary, and uh, he is one of several figures who came out of that church and went on to notable influence within the PCA. In the time I was there in the early 90s, I had the privilege of getting acquainted with Dr. Benton's mother, Elizabeth Benton, a, a wonderfully godly a woman that the pastor of the church and I used to visit in the nursing home occasionally. It was always sweet time with her. Dr. Benton was once asked when he really grasped the gospel for the first time. And he tells the story of being a young boy, and it's a Sunday morning, and his mother has dressed him for church. She is just about ready to go. They're about to leave the house and she's forgotten something and goes back into the bedroom. And she says to young Wilson, wait here and we'll leave in a moment. Well, she left him in the living room and he wandered outside and there had been a rain. And wouldn't you know it, he began to walk around and he slipped on the mud and he fell and he dirtied his Sunday clothing. And he knew that his mother was going to come be coming back any minute And he knew that he was in trouble. And he began to cry. And he said that his mother came to call for him and walked into the living room, came to the back door, looked out and saw him there crying and dirty. And he said she went to him and she knelt down and she embraced him and she comforted him. And she picked him up and took him into the house. And she didn't have time to clean them both up for church. So she takes the dirty clothes off of her son. And she dresses him in clean clothes. And she leaves having the stain of the dirt when he embraced her outside still on the front of her dress. He said, that is why and how I understood as a boy the gospel. That's a picture of what God has done for us in the greater Micah. We're there. We know that the mud of the streets is upon us in our unrighteousness. And he comes to us in all sullied and sinful condition. He hugs us and he gets the dirt on us. On him. And he dresses us in clean clothing. And he brings us to his sanctuary with the stain of our unrighteousness upon himself in the person and the work of his son. That is seeing the vindication of the Lord, that our God does not wish to condemn his own, but he has sent his son into the world that through him we might be saved, we might have new clothing, we might have a garb of his righteousness, we may rejoice and we may be humbled by the fact that he was willing to take our dirt upon himself and to wear it and all the shame and the opprobrium that goes with it. As we look to the vindication of the Lord, we expect his righteousness to be given to us as he takes upon himself the mud of the streets that is upon the very internal recesses of our souls. Well, finally... Then we turn our attention in the third point in the final three verses uh, to the matter of the covenant being known as or grounded in favor. Covenant expectation as grounded in favor. There are actually three components to this. I didn't send this in as, as subpoints, and it would have taken up more room on the, on the slide. But if you're taking notes, jot these down under uh, the heading of covenant expectation as grounded in favor, the favor of the Lord. In verse 11, we have covenant reinstatement. In verse 12, we come upon community enlargement or expansion. And in verse 13, we have comprehensive devastation. Let's walk through these uh, briefly each. First of all, in verse 11, a day for the building of your walls. He's speaking to the remnant here. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. Micah is emphasizing for the people of God here, uh, the the depth and the breadth and the vastness of their dwelling place and how it is that they will be safe there and their enemies will not be able to encroach upon them by virtue of them having a large and wide territory. And again, as we noted last week, the reinstatement of Israel to a better time or a time comparable to her glory days, if you will, That foreshadows what's going to happen in the eternal kingdom. There will be no sin in glorification. There will be the inability to sin. There will be nothing that is a threat to the people of God. A day for the building of your walls. This literally refers to to stones. And it made me think of 1 Samuel 7, verse 12, where the Ebenezer is raised there on behalf of people the people of God, and there is accompanying that action a a declaration of the fact that the Lord has been good to them. Thus far, the Lord has been with them and has guided them and has kept them. That's what Israel will say in the times that Micah is predicting. And in that day, the boundary shall be far extended. Now, the word boundary here literally refers to an edict or a rule that is set in place. And so it's not talking so much about security or limits geographically as it is declarations or standards that are set by the covenant God that define who his people really are as one. God's remnant will, when the day Comes and things come back to some semblance of normality, just like we're looking for now. But ultimately, in the eternal kingdom, blessings will abound, and the boundaries are set sub- such that nothing can ever alter that or bring pain or sorrow to the people of God. You'll be free and unopposed. And you will, to borrow Micah's words in chapter 4, verse 4 be able to sit under your vine or fig tree where nothing will make you afraid. So this is the covenant reinstatement that the people of God have uh, to look forward to and that we can anticipate greatly as we set our eyes toward heaven. But then secondly, uh, we have corporate enlargement or corporate expansion. That is, there are going to be those who are added to the body of God, the people of God, the remnant of God. In verse 12, the pronoun you is actually in the masculine. The your of verse 11 is in the feminine. This is an indication that Micah is most likely shifting his attention from the remnant back to Yahweh himself. In that day, they will come to you, O Lord, In other words, Israel, rejoice in the safety that will be yours, but Lord, you're going to bring many others in, and we need to be, in our day, looking for and anticipating that ourselves. It's so easy to be turned in on ourselves as the body of the Lord and to take on a kind of insular mindset. We need to be outward looking. We need to be anticipating those Gentiles that God will be pleased to bring in among his people, those who are far off, who will be brought near by the blood of the Messiah, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.13. And they're going to come from places that you wouldn't expect. Notice how he cites geographically, and he's speaking symbolically here, of the the wideness of the known world. But notice how these are former and present-day enemies of the people of God. From Assyria, they're going to come to you. Assyria is the enemy of Israel. Micah, in his day, witnessed the fall of the northern kingdom to the Assyrians and the cities of Egypt. Egypt is where they've been in bondage and slavery, and God had brought them out from Egypt to the river that is the Euphrates, from far and wide, from seas that you know about to other seas that you're aware of, from mountains to mountains in all of the earth, there is going to come to pass What he predicts in chapter four that is very similar to Isaiah chapter two, that the mountain of the Lord's house will be built upon his holy hill and all nations will be made to flow to it. Most of us, when you think about it, are Gentiles. We've been brought in. And many people, perhaps there are those among us and those we know in the the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that we We would have never in a million years thought that they could be transformed or they could be changed. But here, you see, we find that great favor of God in which the covenant expectation is grounded, that he's come first to the Jew and then he's going to the Gentile in graftment theology. And even Jews will be brought back into the same tree and Scythian and barbarian male and female, Greek and Jew, slave and free will comprise the eternal remnant of Micah's God. So we need to be expectant and we need to allow that to give us joy. And then finally, uh, we have the matter of comprehensive devastation. There's an important conjunction at the beginning of verse 13. But the earth will be desolate. That is to say, God's people will be reinstated. Those who are God's enemies will be brought in as he is pleased to do so and name them among his own in the remnant. But all others will perish. All others in the earth will be desolate. They will be uh, laid waste. There will be out existing in a place where there is lifelessness and there is nothingness. And death reigns. And of course, yes, that is a depiction of the eternality of hell and being fixed under the eternal just judgment of God precisely because one has not had the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. They have not looked upon the vindication of the Lord. And he states the reason, verse 13, because of its inhabitants, for the fruit of their deeds. It's interesting to uh, read about wicked acts being spoken of as fruit, but he's looking out upon the desolate, lifeless areas, all of those who inhabited, all of those out there, they are going to be desolate precisely because of the fruit, the rotten fruit of their deeds. The wages of sin is death. Paul's words to the Roman church are hovering all over Micah 7:13. So it's very attention-getting. It's almost shocking. Now, most evangelists will tell you that when you do good evangelism, you don't end on a down note. You don't end with the negative. You end with the positive. Uh, some homiletics professors in preaching classes will tell you the same thing. Always end with the good news. Don't leave people hanging with the bad news. Micah sort of does that here, but I would suggest to you that it's not so much important whether we end with good news or bad, but that we end with truth, and there's something that's very effective, expectantly speaking, as we anticipate the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of his people, the church, collectively. There's something beneficial about being left with a sobering note because it underscores that we need all of the things that have come before. As fallen people, we need to be raised. As those in darkness, we need the Lord to emerge as our light and to bring us to himself as the light, out into the light, exposing sin, revealing who he is, and drawing sinners to himself. And so it's good to be reminded of that as in Revelation chapter 21, verses 7 and 8. Some will come to a saving knowledge of God, and others will die by the sovereign curse of God. In Revelation 21, verses 7 and 8, we read, those who conquer have God's heritage, and those who are faithless will have their portion in the lake of fire and sulfur, which is the second death. As that word goes out, As God is pleased, there may be an elect pilgrim on the way journeying who will hear those words, but the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. They may see the sin of Israel, and they may see always goodness and faithfulness and unfathomable fidelity to his own. And by his gracious operation in their hearts, want in and come in to seek, to look upon his vindication and to know acquittal, to know true liberty, to know the ultimate absolution. We need to be honest, the same way that Edward Payson was, the 18th century. Congregational pastor from New Hampshire, who upon his deathbed in 1827 said, Should I be dragged through heaven, earth, and hell, I should still be the same sinful, polluted wretch, unless God himself should renew and cleanse me. Welcome the bad news, because God's gracious and favorable intention is to lead you right into the good news. He renews. And he cleanses and causes you to know that there are great things that lie in store that neither I hath seen nor that ear heard. and Neither have entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him, for those who trust him, for those who look upon his vindication. So may we anticipate, may we think about our brothers and sisters in the world. May we ask the Lord to bring not only individual, but a collective sense of repentance and faith renewal within the body of the Lord Jesus Christ today, so that as we correspond with one another over a distance now, because we can't see face to face, as we communicate, may we have that same spirit about us that longs to see all of the benefits of that God has wrought for his own in the greater Micah, the Lord Jesus Christ, brought to pass, that on that day, we will see in full and know in full what we have only known in part and have only envisioned partially. You know, in the concluding part of Frances Ridley Havergill's poem that she wrote in tribute to Fanny Crosby, she says this, dear blind sister over the sea, an English heart goes forth to thee. We are linked by a cable of faith and song, flashing bright sympathy swift along, one in the east and one in the west, singing for him whom our souls love best. Sister, what will our meeting be when our heart shall sing and our eyes shall see? Know this day that what you will see is that which you have looked into now by grace through faith, fullness of the vindication of the triune God who loved us and gave his Son for us. Let us pray. Lord, how grateful we are that you Love us in a way that cannot be measured, that cannot be understood. And yet we are grateful for, as Michael Hudson mentioned earlier, uh, the gospel's about you. It's your gospel. And you bring us into right relationship with yourself in it. And it's all of you and it is none of us. The only thing that we bring for those wretched sins from which we had to be delivered. Even as Micah 6 6 says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? As we think about that, what else can we say? We have nothing to bring. We cannot come before you with anything to acquit ourselves. We cannot bow before you, our God, with anything that will bring satisfaction for your justice. We're thankful that in the gospel you have, may we keep our sights focused upon you and may we anticipate that day when the fullness of your vindication will be that by which you welcome us and say to us, enter in now to the joy of thy master. We ask it in the master's name, even Jesus, amen.